The views and opinions expressed by hosts, invited speakers, and callers do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Black Talk Media Project or the Black Talk Radio Network. Lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the beast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff, porn, and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up, when famine claims millions. Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas with New Abolitionist and Actionist Johanan Elia and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking, along with projects and people who help combat Today is December 23rd, 2015, the night before the night before Christmas. And our stories include a report from the Daily Nexus says the University of California has sold approximately 25 million worth of indirect investments in private prison corporations after the African Black Coalition, which encompasses UC's nine black student unions, revealed in November that the university held shares in private prisons. A study by Vera Institute of Justice says that U.S. jails now hold nearly 700,000 inmates on any given day, up from 157,000 in 1970. And the Vera Institute of Justice found that smaller counties now hold 44% of the overall total, up from just 28% in 1978. Jail populations in mid-sized counties with populations of 250,000 to 1 million Residents grew by four times, and small-sized counties with 250,000 residents or less grew by nearly seven times. Vera's analysis shows in that time, large county jail populations grew by only about three times. A report from Countercurrent News cites an injunction filed by the FOP, which insists that preserve records that may be used against corrupt CPD violates Section 8.4 of its bargaining agreement in the city of Chicago, and they have begun to destroy evidence. In a microcosm example of a widespread issue, nearly 10% of the Greenwood, Mississippi's 15,000 population was on probation for minor offenses like traffic violations and owing fees to the private company. The company had entitled itself to profits of at least $48,000 a month, all paid for, as one county official said, off the backs of the poor. The Los Angeles Police Department has announced that of 1,356 allegations of bias policing against them by civilians, exactly zero of those allegations were valid. (laughs) Imagine that. In our American is Ferguson series, I get to speak from personal experience. As a New Jersey native, I feel it's my honor and duty to expose this slave state. So tonight, I take it home 
and show with facts that New Jersey is Ferguson. This week's ride of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Ramona Brent. Brant, 52, had been serving a life sentence for a first-time nonviolent cocaine possession charge. Brant was one of 95 federal inmates whose sentences he uh, Obama commuted on Friday, the vast majority of whom were nonviolent drug offenders like her. Our abolitionist in profile tonight is Robert Smalls, 1839 and 1915. Expect all of that and more tonight on New Abolitionist Radio. You can find archived podcasts at newabolitionistradio.blogspot.com. We invite you to join the conversation by calling us at 1641-715-3660, extension 549-032-POUND. Just press star six and one to queue up on the conference line. What's happening, Scotty? What's up, Johanna? Hopefully y'all hear me nice and clear this time. Peace, brother. Hey, what's going on, uh, Max? Now, it sounds like you're kind of far away, but we can hear you loud and clear. Um, it, it's no sense of trying to, you know, improve the audio quality now. It, you know, we in the middle of a program, but we can hear you loud and clear. It just sounds <laughs> like, you know, you're in a hallway or something, you know, that little echo. But you're, you're fine. We can hear you, everything you're saying, and that's all that matters. Uh, greetings to you, brother, Johanna. All right. Peace. Perfect, perfect. Now I hear myself uh, my kind of echoing that. I forgot to list our rider of the 21st century underground railroad. He's on our form list. I just didn't get a chance to put it into the write up. I totally forgot. My bad. Right on. We all good. You were saying, Johanna? No, I just said at first it sounded like I had a bit of a, a echo. Like once I said what I said, I could hear it repeat, but it sounded like it cleared up now. So we good, though. <clears throat> Yeah, I've been going through these struggles here with this food, man. And I'm being extorted by an internet company called Hughes, Inter uh, Hughes Net here in uh, East Over, South Carolina, where they're charging me $150 a month for the worst connection you could possibly imagine. And they're only doing it because they have no competitors. So it's straight extortion. But nonetheless, <laughs> you know me, I'm always looking for stuff like that. Yeah, you might want to look into crazy getting... stories that didn't make my list. Say again, Scotty? Yeah. Um, never mind. Go ahead. I was just saying you were talking about the stories that didn't make the list. It is a lot. I mean, but every week that's what we do. We have the cutting room floor is full of stories that's every bit as important as what does make it to the air. So we might as well get into it. Uh, what's our lead-in story? Uh, you want to start off with the first story right off the bat? Sounds good. Uh, our first story is a victory story, and it's uh, the UC. Uh, convince the, let me see if I can find it and pull it up for you. Mm -hmm. um, you uh, it's the, you the uh, best report from the Daily Nexus that the University of California sold 25 million worth of indirect investments. Now make note of that description, indirect investments, because if you get a chance, we'll tell you exactly what that means, uh, that they have with private prisons. And it only happened after the African Black Coalition investigated the school they were going to. And this consisted of nine black student unions, unions. And they found out that, yes, indeed, they were invested in private prisons. And I'd like to think that we had a part to play in, in that, whether directly or indirectly, because we've been putting this information out about these uh, colleges and universities having prison investments. And it ain't just the colleges and the universities either. Yeah, like you said, directly or indirectly, it, it don't matter to me. It happened, so I'm glad that they did it. 
and said they uh they had uh, over twenty five million dollars in investments in private prisons, um, which of course the same excuse they use all the time with these kind of situations that you know this is always a part of a of a larger you know portfolio. But uh, once you're asked to get specific and look at what's actually in there, then that's what you're going to find. So the choice is going to be there for you to do the same thing. So you know I'm I'm glad that that uh. They were able to be effective. You know, these uh, these these youth are, are giving me some hope. That's something that we had discussed over the last couple of years. Is you know, what is the youth doing? Where are we going? You know, are we raising up the youth? It's going to be the the future and the leaders in this movement. And I think at that point, I think maybe two years ago, we were leaning on the late twenties, early thirties kind of youth. I really, I mean, I know I was like looking at that as being like the people that was just coming out as PhDs. The people that was, you know, coming out with these, you know, higher degrees or whatever, and starting to take positions in, in, um, in these different movements. Or I don't even say movements, but in like, you know, well-established, uh, so-called uh, freedom organizations or what have you. So I think that I personally had a lot of uh, expectation out of them as being, you know, aware in this internet information age, hearing the message we were putting out and others were putting out very similar uh, to ours, and definitely seeing the trauma of the lynchings, the extrajudicial murders going on, definitely looking to those people in that age group, that generation, thinking for sure they'd pick up the baton and be ready to roll with all their credentials in one hand and, you know, the freedom fist raised the other hand. But now we see these youth, the real youth, these teens, <laughs> they doing the, they doing the thing. So, so salute to them. Yeah. I'm, I'm certainly proud of this generation. Uh, when do, when people stop, talk about nobody's doing nothing, you just, you, you're around the wrong people. That's all I can say because we are seeing our youth acting all the time. I'm walking side by side with them on many occasions. And the idea that just by bringing this to the uh, dean's attention, they were able to uh, cause them to divest from almost $30 million in what they call indirect uh, investments, that is a wonderful thing. That's a, a, a victory for everybody that's involved in this. And I just hope that we can continue this trend and that the colleges and the deans are willing to listen to the reasoning behind it. It's a conflict of interest. Why should a school be invested in prisons? That means that you're making money based on how many of your kids end up in prison. So you're hedging your bets. Either you graduate or go to prison. Either way, I'm getting paid. And to say it's indirect investments really is a, a misnomer. Basically, they're saying we just... Uh, invest with a brokerage firm, and they go and buy stocks. You don't know where they're buying stocks from. They're just buying stocks. So uh, it comes with a bundle package. So, yeah, that's just a, it's a misnomer. They know exactly. All they have to do is look. Like, literally, anybody can look at your portfolio and see where your money is invested. And that's exactly what they told them to do. That's what they did. And the accomplishment speaks for itself. $30 million out of slavers' pockets. And uh, kids, young adults, who achieve something real. That's what's up. That's what's up. What they say, reading is fundamental. So, you know, I'm reminded of uh, the other, you know, Columbia Divest movement. Uh, definitely uh, the We Charge Genocide group there in Chicago. I mean, there's a lot of these groups around the country. Mm -hmm. uh, other schools, what was the name of the one that was, I think it was UCLA, that had, uh, that had, had started protesting uh was earlier this year as well. We know what just happened in Missouri, uh in Columbia, University of Missouri at Columbia with the ball players uh standing down. 
and saying they would not play until the president, you know, was removed. So we're seeing these youth um, able to have effects. So, I mean, in my opinion and, and, you know, based on the facts that we study and the experience of, of you know, living as long as I have and seeing this stuff over the years of my life, I think that the definitely the Jesse Jackson types, you know, the Al Sharpton types, the old heads that's in there, and then on down from there, you know, these middle-aged folks and, like I said, the 30-something kind of generation of people. I mean, all these people that have, have had all of this academic success and all these titles and, and degrees conferred upon them and these positions, and I think that these folks are running out of room to hide from what's becoming pretty obvious that they're not trying to do nothing. If these kids can go and storm the president of the university's office and get major changes made at their universities, and we see this happen like a chain reaction all over the country, you know, from coast to coast at several schools. Um, we see these children, you know, in different cities like Chicago affecting the mayor's race, even though they weren't able to unseat Rahm Emanuel, they made a lot of a lot of stink about that. They were able to get the, the reparations fund established for the victims of the police brutality there. So we're seeing the youth able to make moves and get changes made where if it's nothing else, people just are tired of hearing them talk. They don't want to hear them say nothing else. They, they want them to get out of there. They want business as usual to return. Whatever it is, the reason that they're able to use the leverage of their getting loud and I guess feeling like they got nothing to lose. Whereas these other people, I guess maybe they feel like they got too much to lose, so it's not worth really raising their voice too much. So as long as they're a member of Amnesty International, they can go march and carry a sign once a year and say they fighting for the freedom movement, but ain't a damn thing getting done. Well, I'd like to read a couple of parts of this story that we got here and uh, make a couple of uh, notes on it. One. To them, $30 million apparently for use uh, is, is inconsequential. It's, it's nothing to them, $30 million. Klein said UC does not issue statements on investments, but does routinely review its investment totaling $91 billion to see if they are financially sound. So they have $91 billion invested. $30 million is brushing the dust off their shoulders, but to us, it's very important because you're supporting a slave system. Now, you may be throwing pennies at them by comparison with your $91 billion, but those pennies are killing our people, literally killing people. Uh, there's, you know, these slave catchers are fighting to make that $30 million that you just put out. That was a beautiful thing. And also, there's another quote here that says, when the UC system is the largest public institution in the country and is investing millions of dollars in the private prisons, the message is obviously that you support this because even if you say rhetorically that you don't, your money is speaking. And that came from Haley, uh, one of these people who made this happen. Haley said ABC members have been speaking with UCOP chief investment officers of the regions, Jagdi Singh Bakker, since August and are hopeful that his office continues to work with the coalition on its additional demands, which include issuing quarterly investment reports and divesting $425 million from Wells Fargo, which owns shares in private prisons. Now, Wells Fargo is the second largest uh, uh, owner of shares and the second largest private prison in the country, Geo Group. 
they own huge amounts of shares. So by supporting Wells Fargo, you're supporting slavery, is what they're saying. And now that takes about how, how many times have we said that? That's 425 million. But how many times have Pardon we said me? that over and over on this program for several years now and urged people to take their money out of Bank of America, take their money out of Wells Fargo? I mean, you would think it would be enough, you know, that these institutions practice discrimination and racism in their loan practices. And that's been documented time and time again. But the, I mean, just the very fact that they are invested in modern day slavery, slavery, a.k.a. the prison system, you know, uh, think about the banks, man. How many? I mean, um, excuse me, the churches. You know, I remember Max, you telling us, you know, you reached out to this church, wanted to talk to them about these things, and and they rejected the message. You know, so I, I'm I'm just saying, man, the very least that people could do, man, is take their money out of these banks that are invested in private prison. Yeah, I mean that's the that that's one of the easiest things you could do, man. And so I'm just happy to see uh, institution after institution divest itself from the private prison uh, system. Right, right. I kind of feel like collectively we've cost this prison industrial complex or this new slavery system somewhere in the numbers of two to $300 million already. <laughs> You know what I mean? If you start adding it up with Columbia Divest and UC and the teachers unions and all the negative press that they've been getting, yeah, that's a lot of money. And that's that's what uh, makes people pay attention to. Hey, you start on, costing them two or three hundred million dollars in profits. You know, on a on a um, oh, this is separate from this story, but I, I, I think it's kind of somewhat related. But Bernie Sanders in the third Democratic debate missed another opportunity to promote the uh, uh, what is it the 2015 Justice is Not for Sale Act, which would abolish private prisons and jails. And then, you know, hell, we wouldn't need anybody to divest because the institution wouldn't exist. These companies wouldn't even exist. So I was like, you know. I'm like you know, on Twitter. I was like saying, man, it does really appear like he's sheepdogging for uh, that murderous uh, Hillary Clinton, who who her and her husband, man, more. I would say, you know, I don't know if you guys would agree with this, but I would say that the Clintons, more than any politician, uh, uh, are responsible for the current modern day slavery system than any than any politician than any individuals in this country, man. And, and, and so, again, you know, I was disappointed that that man uh, did not take an opportunity to to talk about uh, his historic uh, bill that he co-sponsored that is legislation in Congress right now to ban private prisons and jails. Hmm. You, you know, you, you have a good point. If you look at the prison system, this new slave system and its rebirth as a demonic child. Well, Ronald Reagan gave birth to it. Like he brought it back uh, and organized the first private prisons and helped put them together. But the Clintons brought them up from birth, literally involved with their own personal money in the initial public offering of uh, private prisons, uh, Wackenhut and uh, CCA. And they're still making money on these private prisons. This is one of the reasons why recently, I think about two months ago, Hillary Clinton uh, liquidated all of her personal assets so nothing could be traced to where this money came from. But they were making huge amounts of money. I mean, they, 
They became part of the 1% because of what they did to the United States of America and to black people in particular by incarcerating half a million black men during his tenure. And making money at every single moment of it. Right. But when you say that uh, he may be a sheepdog, yeah, that's how I felt after speaking with his team. I was optimistic. But when that first Democratic uh, uh, debate came out and he didn't mention it, I knew exactly what he was doing. He was uh, basically just throwing a bone in our direction saying, look, I care, but I don't really care. You know, here, do with what, what you want. It's yours now. I've already put the bills to do. Everything that happens with now is up to you because I'm never going to mention it again. Yeah, man. And then, I mean, he he takes more opportunities to defend Hillary Clinton than he does to promote that bill. Showing his hand. Right. And for those that don't know, it's called the Justice is Not the Sale Act, which effectively makes it illegal for private prisons to operate in the United States borders. That they'll have only two years to shut down their businesses and remove the prisoners from their facilities and put them into federal or state facilities. It doesn't free anybody. It just stops private prisons, which is a very big start. It's the first legislation since the 1800s that had had anything to do with freeing or uh, ending for-profit slave trades where people, human beings, are the commodity being traded on Wall Street. Right on. Well, shout out to the students. Well, shout out to the youth, to the to those uh, the youth that's in the movements, that's uh, doing what they can do. That's all we can control, man. You know, that's all we can do is is uh, work at the things that we can control as individuals, and then come together in groups where we are of like mind and willing to work together and uh, can build trust and grow with each other and learn to work with one another. Because I'm sure that group of of youth. Uh, didn't hit the ground running. I'm sure they had to learn to work with one another. I'm sure they had to come up with something that they agreed was going to be what they were going to work towards, you know, making that happen and start building day after day. I'm sure they didn't just show up one day all at the same time at the student union and then walk to the president's office and demand that this happen. They had to build and grow and learn. So like when Scotty, you know, reminds me, and Max, too, reminds me, you know, to kind of take it easy, like on Black Lives Matter. Take it easy on some of these groups that's out here that's just kind of getting started and trying to learn. One thing that separates, like, these kids from what gets me frustrated is whether we had to tell them or not, they got on the right track immediately and moved forward to make a change in, in something that actually matters. So they didn't spend a whole lot of time. You didn't see these kids out on uh, the evening news marching through the streets with signs and, and demanding that somebody care about what they mad about. They took the leverage that they had. They presented their situation to the powers that be at the school where they're at. And they made change come to pass. Same thing with Columbia Divest Program. All these different uh, divestment groups and these student union groups and these student advocacy groups that's coming out and, and making these kind of changes with the investment strategies of the schools that they go to, they know what kind of leverage they have to be able to do that. Even with the athletes at Columbia, uh, University of Missouri, Columbia, they knew what kind of leverage they had. And as soon as they affected the uh, the ratings and the advertisements for one of their games on a Saturday, all of a sudden changes start happening. So this is the kind of power we actually have to be able to affect change. So, again, I don't 
want to call the people out and be mad at them like I'm just against them or whatever. I'm glad they've got a group and they come together. They have like-mindedness. But all that ranting and raving and going around carrying signs and talking about, well, you better do this, you better do that. Yeah, that has its place, but at some point you've got to get an agenda, as Hillary Clinton told them face-to-face. Well, give me what the, the agenda is. What do you want me to do? So good shout-out to them. Right, Kudos right. for having an agenda, presenting it, and getting it carried out. You know, I'm finding that in a lot of cases, they may not get the whole story. Like, you know, like you said, they're, they're learning. They, they may not get all yet, but they know something needs to be, be done now. And they know where the general direction of the problem is coming from. You know, not everybody is willing to accept that slavery never ended, uh, despite the facts. <laughs> Literally, despite the facts. It's taking some time. But they do know that this mass incarceration is a big damn problem. And that they see that the powers that be who control the purse strings are heavily invested in uh, the incarceration of people who look just like them. So, yeah, big props to them. I'm hoping that we can get them on the show to tell us, uh, you know, how they started this. So we can, and, you know, what drove them and what they think now and so on and so forth. And, and give them some props because they deserve it. Well, I mean, they probably, they probably, well, before um, we do that, Max, let me just say, right. you know, um, let's acknowledge the first student group that I heard of that did this was at Columbia University. And so perhaps, you know, other right. student right. groups are seeing this and it's just snowballing. It has that snowball effect. And, and so, uh, again, man, you know, and, and going to what, what Johanan was saying, you know, I was like, you know, are some of these Black Lives Matter individual act activists engaged in some nonsense or whatnot? Yeah, yes, they are. But an individual don't make up a movement. But but my point is, it's not like it's not like we have had elder activists that's been out there in the struggle for 40 years that have been training up, you know, and passing the baton on. You know, that has been a big debate among, you know, in the Black Panther uh, um, uh, organization. And I'm talking about the elders, the Black Panthers, and there have been, you know, communications or discussions about, you know, they didn't pass the baton. But, but not that I'm trying to, to, uh, put any blame on them, but, you know, most of them are in prison. And that's why they can't help nobody. They become a victim of the thing that they've been fighting, that they were fighting. And, and so that's why I try to taper my criticism because it's not like, you know, uh, uh, we were even trained. Our generation, you know, you guys, uh, we are around the same age. Who trained us up on these, on the politics of, of these things and what was happening and how to, to attack it? I had to learn about it on my own and from people like you. Yeah, same here. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I look at the elder generation and I, I understand they didn't have to deal with what we were dealing with. Mass incarceration, as we know, it did not exist in the 60s. It didn't exist for Malcolm. It didn't exist for Martin. It didn't exist for Huey or Bobby. Uh, although they were using prison as a weapon at the time, in the early 70s and the late 60s, there were less than 200,000 prisoners nationwide. Now we have 2.5 million with 20 million Max, Max, Max. So this whole concept, Max, I, I, yeah. I just had to correct you on that. Eldridge Cleaver wrote a book about it, man, and they recognized it as slavery. They called it prison slavery. If you look at some of those old interviews, and and I forget the name of Eldridge Cleaver's book, but I heard Huey Newton talking about 
that book and a couple of interviews and saying how they were being attacked because of Eldridge Cleaver and his book and how it exposes, you know, the prison slave system. So they were. And, and we know today, you know, Angela Davis, former Panther, you know, still speaking out on it. Yeah, she inspired me. There, there were some, uh, more than a few, I guess, who were fully aware, but I didn't see where it was a priority in the agenda to uh, shut down these prisons. Uh, more of a revolution was the thing, and black empowerment. It, from what I've seen, there was no priority to shut down these prisons, and at the time, there were no private prisons as we know them today. But uh, it it was a priority to stop the slave right catchers, now. though. Yes, 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 indeed, and they uh, died on more than one occasion at the hands of these slave characters who were then just getting into their legs of what they would do to us today. So uh, that was, was the seeds of everything right then. Because when Nixon started the, drug, the war on drugs in the 70s, in the early 70s, like 71, that was a direct reply to the black movement prior to it. That was a direct reply in combination with Roe versus Wade, to enacted genocide and mass incarceration. He was paving the way for the next presidents to come along and make it even worse, which Reagan did, which Clintons did. And uh, now we have an almost blind eye coming from our current president. You know, he has never, that I've ever heard, mentioned anything about for-profit private prisons. Not once. Well, I was listening, and we do got to take our next break, but I was listening to... Uh, this video of uh, Chairman Fred Hampton, you know, the founder of the Chicago chapter of the Black Panther Party, and he was talking about there must be education before there could be action. That's the name of the video. But in this video, he was talking about how, you know, uh, various uh, uh, movements among black people uh, started off at revolutions. And then, you know, the people leading those revolutions turned into the oppressor. And he was saying education without mm -hmm. action will lead to having a Negro imperialist. And immediately I thought about Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. Well, um, just going to say real quick, when I talk about private prisons being the problem, it's not just the private prisons. The federal prisons learned and the state prisons also were built to do this. The private prisons only made it explode and caused competition for federal and state who strove to keep up, which caused this mass incarceration period. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio with Scotty Reed, Johanna Nelaya, and Max Parthas. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what this world is coming to. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Our next story coming up is uh, a study that has come out and says that smaller counties are driving U.S. population jail population growth. Now, we've been telling you now, at least for the past year, that this is the new trend. In order to make it look like they're de-incarcerating, they're switching from prisons to jails. So more people are going to jails, more jails are being built, and many of these jails have no uh, oversight involved in them whatsoever. So 
the conditions can be horrible and terrible. And I've got some personal stories of my own, but let's read this uh, story that came out of the big story from AP. And it says, while big city jails get most of the attention, lockups in small and medium-sized counties have actually driven the overall explosion in the U.S. inmate population, according to the analysis of 45 years of jail statistics. U.S. jails now hold nearly three-quarters of a million inmates on any given day, up to up from 160,000 in 70, and the Vera Institute of Justice found that smaller counties now hold 44% of the overall total, up from 28% in 1978. Jail populations of mid-sized counties and populations of 250,000 uh, to a million residents grew by four times, and small sized counties with 250,000 residents or less, like the one I live in right now, grew by nearly seven times. Seven times. Uh, various analysis shows that uh, in that time, large county jail populations grew by only about three times. Now, three times growth is still stupendous for large county jails, but seven times is outrageous. And you know who's going in these jails. We talk about it every week and show you the stats state by state. Exactly what's behind this trend is not clear, but experts say a range of factors like, uh, likely contribute. From law enforcement's increased use of summons, summonses and traffic tickets to the closing of state mental hospitals at that time. And don't you just love it when they say it's not clear? That's because you don't accept the fact that it's slavery. If you was accepting the fact that it was slavery, it would be damn clear what's going on. Everyone's jail problem is a little different, says Barry Christian Henrikson. Unlike state prisons that hold inmates doing lengthy terms, local jails and county lockups are generally used to house pretrial detainees or those who have been sentenced to serve stints of a year or less for relatively minor crimes. Jail use continues to rise, though crime rates have declined since peaking in 1991. Over 20 years ago, crime rates peaked and have been declining, but the jail rates is going up. Blacks are jailed at nearly four times the rate of one, and the number of women locked up in jails has gone from 14-fold since 1970, according to the Vera report. Now, we posted this on New Abolitionist Radio, so you can go ahead and read the rest of it. Repeat them statistics. Talking about what we think about what's being said here. Repeat that, Say again, Scotty. Repeat that statistic again about the uh, uh, women. About the growth? Yes. Uh, jail use continues to rise, though crime rates have declined since peaking in 1991. The analysis shows blacks are jailed at nearly four times the rate of whites, and the number of women locked up in jails has grown 14-fold since 1970. But yet, I mean, I just wanted to reiterate that because, you know, um, I, I'm just wondering where these feminists at, man. You know, you know, your, your sisters are being enslaved at the highest rate, um, you know, than ever, than ever before. Um, and then, you know, I hear people complaining about, well, why is it only black men is being gunned down on cops being focused on? Well, they getting gunned down the most, you know, and I have seen women who have been gunned down out there. Um, being highlighted as well but I mean it, it, who are you talking about highlighting these people we don't control the mainstream media we don't we have no say over who what victim they showcase or, or, or whatever we try to talk about them all um, but 
you know, this thing with, with, with our, I mean, it's like, man, we said it time and time again, you know, they've been focused on a black male for a very long time. Now, you know, they are increasing their focus on incarcerating black women, you know, and, and, and now, you know, I would, I would not be surprised to see similar increases in the, the in the incarceration of black children either. It's like, man, they trying to put the whole family in, in the chains, man. Go ahead, Max. I actually posted on that earlier today uh, where there's been a complete... I posted on what you just said earlier today. There's been a complete reverse of incarceration of youths. At one point, uh, prior to 2006, it was primarily white youths who were in prison or in juvenile detention facilities. That is completely reversed now to the point where you're getting five times as many black kids being arrested as whites in places like Mississippi and Alabama when they only make up a small percentage of the entire population. So the kids are getting it really bad right now, particularly because of things like uh, this bounty that they have on their heads now, which goes all the way up to $320,000 a year to incarcerate one child in places like New York. Literally a bounty on their head. So the arrest rate of African-American youth has skyrocketed, completely reversed in just a decade. The financial incentive that we talk about all the time, it's not really hard for people to understand. Uh, uh, as they say with the, you know, you can't wake somebody that's not asleep, you know. These people know what's going on. And I'm talking about our people, you know, the 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 non-white folks that's around here, the the poor, the, uh, the so-called middle class. I'm not even talking about the elites, you know. I'm not even talking about the people that, that are benefiting directly by their complexion connection from white supremacist imperialism around the globe as well as a white supremacist stronghold on this institution of slavery and never letting it really go, the jobs it provides, the benefits it provides, the wealth and the control of resources. I'm not even talking about them people. I'm talking about our people <laughs> This in this domestic colony right here hand in hand with us. Got the same threat of slavery hanging over their heads just like we do. Some of these people that have been getting killed by the police are educated black folks, are living good black folks, are these black people that's in these fraternities and in these sororities. So they're still choosing to not look at the financial incentive that's over their black head as though their ancestors didn't have a financial incentive over their black heads. And that didn't explain clearly and concisely exactly. in 1500, 1600, 1700, 1800. That explained why they was after your black ass then. It explains why they after you right now. Yep. That's exactly it. The same thing all over again, which is why we're new abolitionists, because that same old slavery never ended. As a matter of fact, it has come back more streamlined, more accepted and stronger than ever. We've even had a show here, a program here this year during 2015, where we showed you how it's gone global with other countries now adopting the American model of private prisons for places like Brazil, which has uh, an infamous prison system that is full of brutality and everything you can imagine, has now went privatized. So you got outside investors buying their prisons, hence buying the people in the prisons. 
That's the game. And making there's money. Some they talked about in the article Africa, too that uh, prison, country, to prison company. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Max. Uh, well, there was a couple things that I just want to make note of in the in the article. One thing that they say is that uh, blacks are jailed at nearly four times the rate of whites. Okay, that's on a national level. But we, right. in our research here, we're doing America is Ferguson, have found that there are states or even cities where it is nowhere near close to that. Where in uh, Wisconsin, for instance, particularly in Milwaukee, you have a more than one in two chance of being arrested and incarcerated before you're 30 years old. More than one in two. So when we use these widespread averages, it doesn't take into account the extremes of what's going on across America. And there's one other quote in here that I do want to read, which drives it home. The number of jails with 1,000 beds or more has soared from 21 in 1970 to 145 in 2014. And the average number of days people stay locked up in jail has grown from 9 in 1978 to 23 in 2014. Jail is the new plantation, or the extra plantation now. It's the next generation of incarceration. And it's where, like you saw, uh, Eric Holder, before he left office, he tried to make sure he padded his resume as though he had, you know, been so progressive and had really done a damn thing. And this is what we, one of the things we heard him taking credit for and puffing his chest out and squeezing, you know, popping the buttons off his shirt, as he said, for the first time in 32, 33 years, whatever the number was, but it's right there in line with when the rise of the private prisons. We know the, we know the history, so around 30 to 35 years is right when the, the rise of the private prison complex during, like you said, the Reagan administration, the end of the Nixon times, and the, and the beginning of the Reagan administration when this stuff ramped up. And he stood up there, Holder stood up there and took credit, saying that uh, for the first time in all those years, uh, they had actually seen a reduction in the federal rates, in the federal roles. And so New Abolitionist Radio immediately reports, so, okay, well, where are those people going? Oh, state prisons? Okay. Oh, uh, the city jails? Because the private prisons are controlling the, the local jails in a lot of places around the country. So they're able to shift those inmates that were already being shipped to private prisons and hidden from the federal roles because their bodies weren't physically in a federal prison at that time. Well, they took them one step further and took them out of there and put them in city jails and in county jails. And now you got the mayors and the sheriffs with they hand out for some of the revenue. Like you can't just bring these federal uh, inmates in here and not pay us our share of other stuff. So it's man, it's such a, what a, uh, just a bed of snakes. Just, uh, it's out of control, man. It's out of control. This is out of control. The point of the story, well, I was just going to say, you know, um, and this is still on that topic, but I like follow a couple of survival, a survivalist program, uh, pages on Facebook, you know, to give you tips and stuff about prepping and, and preparing right. and whatnot. And, and so, you know, those people, and, and it's mainly, uh, uh, white people that's in, into that stuff, but they share a whole lot of useful information, man. I tell you, you mm-hmm. know, from hunting to, to all kind of stuff, man. And so the other day, man, they um apparently have come up with some kind of and i gotta check my email because i did sign up to get it some kind of report that shows that there is a coming 
police state. And I told them, I wrote on their on their uh, timeline, I was like, what do you mean coming police state? A police state has always existed for certain communities and certain groups of people in this country. And, and you know, and then, you know, um, this most of the people agree with what I said, but then this one guy, you know, he was an ex-cop or whatever, and he was talking about, I used to be a cop, and it ain't no police state. I said, yes, it is. I said, if you ever locked up anybody, arrested anybody, and charged them with prostitution, or charged them for a nonviolent uh, crime, you know, involving drugs, I said, you were enforcing the police state. And, and he didn't have nothing else to say, man, but, um, I mean, all the signs are there if you only look. And the problem is, is when people say the police state is coming, you know, they are choosing to either purposely ignore What's happening to certain populations, or you know, they are they are just unaware. Ignoring in their state, hoping it's gonna go away. People. And they're like, "What? The police state is coming for white people? Yeah, because it's already been happening to black people for generations now." You were gonna say something, Your Honor? No, I just said ignoring it, so hoping that it would go away. But there's another quote in this article where they say the sheriff of Oklahoma City, for example, wants to build a new $360 million jail to replace the current nearly 3,000 inmate jail that the U.S. Justice Department cited for unconstitutional conditions in 2008. So now the sheriff, this who the hell is a sheriff? I mean, a sheriff wants to build a $360 million jail for 3,000 people. Not 30,000, not 300,000, for 3,000 people. Now, that's got to be a moneymaker for him, right? And yeah, he got to be getting some kind of kickbacks. Had. He got to be getting some kind yeah. of kickbacks. You know what? Got to be a $360 million deal. Oh, my God. And it's already uh, been cited as unconstitutional conditions and that's something that gets under my skin all the time when people talk start talking about how the federal government has come in and said that this is unconstitutional but the federal government don't never do a damn thing about it we saw that with the ferguson report and we're going to see that with the chicago report too every time same thing as they said in their own report in the ferguson report Patterns and practice of of racial profiling, race-based policing, illegal stop, search, and seizure, on and on. These things are named, as you said, but then don't no charges come down. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. I had to call out. I had to call out. A, I had to call out a sister uh, uh, earlier this week. <clears throat> High up in the education system, you know college professor for years, university professor for years, proud of herself, you know, plenty of friends. I've been knowing her for a few years uh, through social media myself. I've talked with her several times and uh, tried to collaborate with her. She's in sociology and is always studying, you know, our society and, and, and heavy into the numbers and checking out, you know, black wealth and black uh, middle class and single blacks and black women and black men and always doing reports. And I mean, her information is always compelling and interesting to read and you know, she she makes good, great cases. She's obviously aware and, and intelligent woman. And I've talked to her about abolitionism, talked to her about, you know, the transition in some of this information into 
the uh, the police state, into the slave state, into the uh, mass incarceration problem that we have or what have you. And it's almost like you can hear the tumbleweeds just kind of blowing in the space between her ears whenever I've tried to discuss it with her. And so now I find out she's working with the police. She's stood up and posted some pictures of herself <laughs> giving awards, giving lifetime achievement awards to the outgoing uh, police police chief in, in some city where she's based out of where she had been yeah, going I through saw like that. a citizens Yeah, she was going through like a citizens police academy. Right. Twelve weeks of training and whatever and at the end of it. Training in slave catching. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Training training the citizens in, in the propaganda and supporting the propaganda of the police state machine. And it all makes sense why it's like I can't get a word in edgewise with this woman about what's really going on, even though she's as intelligent as anybody I've ever met. But this is what I'm talking about. This is what we're dealing with. People are willingly mm-hmm. turning their head, turning their back, turning their ears off, turning their eyes off. They don't want to read it, hear it, or speak on it. Angling They're for willingly them, doing this. Angling for them mm-hmm. butter biscuits, bro. Man, it's sad, man. Yes. Well, in concluding with this story, just keep in mind with listeners, that it's the small counties that are driving this. People that think they can get away with it because they're in the middle of nowhere and they've been doing this for forever with courthouses that look like chicken shacks or they're having court in the garage or front yard with some of these magistrate judges who have decided they're going to allow their racial discriminatory uh, concepts to rule over their judicial hands, even though they have no experience in law whatsoever are allowed to practice it. We reported on those stories in places like Georgia, where as many as 200,000 cases uh, of people who were fined and or arrested need to be repealed and thrown out because the judge had no business doing it to begin with. And it were all the traffic fines uh, where they were exploiting people. And like here in my city of Eastover, where our courthouse looks like a chicken shack, like literally. And it's still, uh, from what I understand, every Thursday and Wednesday. One day I'm going to go in there with a camera and see what I can get away with. <laughs> but, yeah, if you're wondering where all your black men and women and children, or even your, your, your poor white men, women, and children are going, <clears throat> look to these small <laughs> local jails. Right. Yeah. Um. And, and, and again, so you know, Matt. Um, there must be some kind of delay, but we're not okay. gonna, we're not gonna worry about it. But you know, again, I just want to reiterate to people that you know, um, while black people, African descended people, are disproportionately targeted and enslaved on a system, um, in little counties where I like where I live, where it's like eighty plus percent all white, and you know, I've been in jail a couple of times over minor stuff, didn't pay a fine, didn't show up to court, you know what I'm saying, something like that, and man, I was like, when I was in there, I was like shocked to see that 80% that the jail population actually reflected the county, so anybody out there that's non-black, that think that this ain't happening to people who look like you, they are. They just not being showcased. But man, I was like, man, and, and most of those people in there were for nonviolent drug offenses, and and cause meth is a big problem in this county I live in. Yeah, yeah you know, if, if white people could get past the white sacrifice and, and start paying attention to the numbers of their own people who are being thrown into these prisons and jails for profit, 
they would probably be in the streets in mass already right along with us. But for some reason, they just throw it out the window because they have a comparison. And they can always say, at least I'm not, not a lot. You, you guys are getting arrested 14 to 1 in a place where you only get, you only make up 1.3% of the population. So, hey, at least I'm not you. Right. Somehow, somehow we got to get them to uh, wake up along with everybody else and start doing something. And there are quite a few. I've got a number of friends uh, who are of European descent that fight just as hard as we do, Scotty. And we, we know, like uh, Brother Michael out there and Ancy out there and uh, Jessica and so many others who, uh, despite their own origins, stand up for the right thing, not the white thing. Okay, so um, I guess we'll go on to my story, unless you guys ain't got any more on this one about the uh, small counties driving the jail population. No, man, we can move on. We got it going, flowing pretty good. All right, cool, cool. Well, we're going to go into some down and dirty deeds that's happening in Chicago. As we know, the uh, federal government now has decided that they need to investigate the Chicago Police Department. With all of these different videos and exposés coming out, uh, like the black ops site that they've had there for forever, and uh, people being murdered in broad daylight, shot to death uh, multiple times by corrupt police, and the extortion, and all of these things that is coming out, um, the federal government's decided, you know what, we have to act like we're doing something, like they did in Ferguson. So we're going to go in, and we're going to write the story of Chicago, and what they're going to do, called the DOJ Chicago Report. Well, the uh, Fraternal Order of Police understand that if any information, like if the information that is available in the CPD is uh, subpoenaed or they're forced to give up all these documents and the feds start digging through, it's going to be, the heads are going to start falling in, in large numbers. So uh, let me read this story that we got here from Countercurrent News. Unless you want to read it, Johanna or Scotty. Man, I'll go ahead. This from this from Countercurrent News. Chicago cops say keeping evidence of misconduct keeps cops it puts cops in danger, so they're destroying it. The the evidence, which is this is this is just more of that mess, man. With protesters, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, thronging the streets of Chicago, demanding police accountability and clamoring for the resignation of Mayor Rahm Emanuel, the city's police union is frantically trying to destroy decades of records documenting police misconduct. As is always the case, the Fraternal Order of Police sees officer safety, as, the, as they call it, quote-unquote officer safety, as the highest priority, including protection from legal accountability. Think about that. That's not a matter of opinion. The facts are every time the same thing. All these unions do is work to keep police above the law, period. They will not face legal accountability, as it said right there, protecting them from any legal accountability. That's all they do, again and again. But this is the people that deserve to go home to their families, and, and they deserve to this, and they deserve to that, and there are heroes that all of these freaking idiot-ass people just... It, it drives me up a wall when I hear people just jump on that bandwagon and don't have a clue what they're talking about. I protect all my members, and I will continue to do that. Dean Angelo, president of the uh, Chicago FOP, explained to CNN, 
an injunction filed by the Fraternal Order of Police insists that preserving those records violates Section 8.4 of its bargaining agreement with the city of Chicago. See, this is what your cop friends, your cops that you love, your best friends, your brothers, your sisters, whoever that's in there to make you love all of them, this is what they're doing behind the scenes. They got to deal with the city. In a city like Chicago, with over a hundred and some odd years of history of straight up, flat out corruption, ongoing murder and extortion, drug trafficking, prostitution rings, dope rings, and whatever you want to call everything, all manners of vice and criminality. The police are the number one violators in the city of Chicago. This is a documented fact in the history of America for over a hundred and something years. But this is what the cops do. They go behind your back and make an agreement with the city that makes it so that the files for anybody's misconduct investigation or any officer's disciplinary history must be destroyed five years after the date of the incident or the date upon which the violation was discovered, whichever is longer, except that not sustained files alleging criminal conduct of excessive force shall be retained for a period of seven years after the date of the incident or upon the date which the violation is discovered, whichever is longer. Why in the hell is your best friend, your honest cop buddy, your, your, he's a veteran, he's a cop, he's an all-American hero, why would this bastard go to the city behind your back and make a deal for, to cover his ass that his records of misconduct and corruption and brutality and murder and whatever else he done did gets to be completely wiped and the record is destroyed five years after it happened. Why would he do that? Um, you're going to be on parole. You can't vote. You can't have a gun. You, your record follow you for the rest of your life. Right, right. I was just about to say, speaking of some current legislation, uh, Senator Rand Paul and um, um, Cory Booker, the Redeem Act, you know, passing right. legislation so that, you know, these records will be expunged on these nonviolent drug things. But um, to me, police unions should be abolished. I, I see them as terrorist organizations and, and whatnot. That is, again, as you just laid out for us, you know, are, are making deals with politicians to, to get their records expunged so it don't follow them and, and whatnot. So. Man, I, I mean, it's just, it, 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 man, this place, man, is terrible. We live in a terrible country, you know, and for you not to see that, you must be walking around with your eyes closed. Well, you just said that the cop told you on, well, the, on the survival page that we don't live in a police state. I, I wonder what would a police state look like? Would a police state look more or less like a place where the police were able to go and tell your city managers, your city controllers, your mayors, your council people, people that control the what goes on in your city, know what you're going to do is destroy the records of our misconduct five years after it happens, and it can never be used against us in any type of a legal proceeding again. Is that is that uh, more or less evidence. like police state behavior? Including the evidence. So that means that yes. if what you charged them for was nowhere near what they were doing, you can't even use that evidence on these new charges. I mean, uh, basically, imagine a conversation between two corrupt police, right? And uh, Joe and John. Joe says, hey, I just killed a guy. And uh, 
I don't know what to do. And John says, well, all you got to do is get away with it for five years. And nobody can get you after that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you evidence for five years, lie for five years. And after five years, it doesn't matter. You can brag about it. Like, yo, I killed a guy five years and a day ago. What you going to do about it? Right, right, right. Who's, who was the, the dude that was torturing the teenagers out there? Was that Burge? Uh, yes, yes, John, John Burge. Was the torturer? He wasn't torturing just teenagers. Is that why he got away with it? Yeah, I, I'm not sure of that specifically why. I think he got away with it because the current prosecutor, who was the prosecutor at the time, Anita Alvarez, just didn't charge him. Just like she wasn't right. going to charge the dude that killed uh, Laquan McDonald. Yeah. Well, the city of Chicago, this is in this, we're still reading from the story, but just for, just so people get context of, uh, we stopped in the first few sentences of the story because this is like a major thing you need to be considering. The city of Chicago paid $54 million in settlements and verdicts for police misconduct cases last year, 2014. That's also including another $10 million they had to pay in attorney fees. So $50 million in a year is a re- I mean, does that seem like a ridiculous amount of money to anybody else, or am I just crazy? Chicago has paid over a half a billion dollars in police brutality settlements since the year 2004. Wow. So when you're talking about a fraternal, the, I don't want to drop no bombs on here, but the, the fraternal order of police should be, should have about as much credibility is they give, I don't know, like how they love to, to, to disparage Farrakhan when he stands up and says something or tries to do something. They just love to jump his case and say he's, you know, he's, he's full of hate and he's this and that. Farrakhan ain't lied to you, though. But you can't, he can't get nothing done because they jump all over him in the media and, and tear his character down. But you got groups like the Fraternal Order Police that the numbers are right there for you. They, the city, the taxpayers have paid out a half a billion dollars since 2004 in settlements for police brutality cases over all those years. They paid out almost a half a billion dollars, and they've got credibility. They shouldn't be able to go before the city and make any kind of – they shouldn't even be able to be, be in existence. You know who else don't have any credibility? Those uh, so-called uh, fiscal conservatives, you would think they would be concerned right. about all of this money right. being paid right. out. But instead, they take they want to blame the victim and say, oh, you know, they just trying to hit the ghetto lottery. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and whatnot. But, you know, uh, wow. apparently they they like paying to see, you know, all these folks get killed or something that, I, you know, but where the fiscal conservatives at? That say, you know, uh, we had to rein in all this, all this spending and, and whatnot. Right. What are the people mad about food stamps at? Where they at? Let's let's compare numbers. Did Chicago pay out more in food stamps from 2004 to black people specifically, or did they pay out more in the ghetto lottery, as they call it, from police brutality well, I, cases? That hurts that my heart even pay. hearing that phrase, man. Like. Somebody's son or daughter dying is a way to win a lottery because mm-hmm. you're going to get paid for it or being brutalized or shot in front of your family or, or anything is called a, a ghetto lottery. I can't even say that. It can't even come out of my mouth without me feeling Well, stuck. that's one of them racist dog whistles we know. Hmm. Right. 
truth. To think that they would, somebody would put those two words together in reference to African Americans or uh, people of color being brutalized day in and day out and subjugated to the worst possible tortures and brutalities that a human mind can come up with as some kind of benefit for us. Is it, uh, see, I'm about to get pissed off. Namie mm. Orenge Kyo. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I just certain things I can't just say. They just don't so fit in my vocabulary. I don't even want to perpetuate them. But go ahead, brother. <laughs> all right, so back to the story, folks. Uh, sorry about all that. Uh, we kind of went off the rails a little bit. Once the deadline passes, though, the episode of excessive force or other misconduct cannot be used against the officer in any future proceedings in any other form unless it deals with a matter subject to litigation during the five-year period or unless a pattern of sustained infractions exists. This element of the bargaining agreement creates an incentive for the police department to delay, obstruct, and obfuscate investigations of misconduct and abuse complaints until the deadline expires, which of course they do, and to keep the process opaque to the public. Basically, they bargained away transparency and accountability, points out Chicago University law professor Craig Footerman, who is fighting in court to prevent the destruction of the officer misconduct records. In a world where an incident like the fatal police shooting of Laquan McDonald happens and the public sentiments are denied, denied, the public statements are denied, 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 and then close off and circle the wagons, and then a code of silence and an exoneration at the end of the day, in that system, you cannot create public trust, which he ain't lying. Futterman, who founded Chicago University's Civil Rights and Police Accountability Project, has spent 15 years trying to end the official impunity of police officers. Uh, of police officers. Chicago, Futterman told the Sun-Times, is the capital of the code of silence. Oh, but what about all them people? Did like to blow that other racist dog whistle and talk about black on black crime is such a problem because the black folks will never work with the police. They they won't come forward and be witnesses. They won't cooperate with the police to turn in the people that's doing the crimes in the in the hood. The police is the greatest the blue wall of silence. You ever heard of that? That's the people that won't ever tell on who's doing what's what's going on. And that's why the violence and the crime continues, because they're the ones doing it, and they're the ones allowing it. They're the ones empowering it. Why have they never caught anybody with a massive shipment of guns coming to Chicago? It's millions of people living in Chicago. It's tens of thousands of illegal guns on the streets of Chicago. What the hell is the police even still in existence for in a city like that when you can't stop the drugs, you can't stop the guns, you can't stop the killings, you can't stop the prostitution. You can't stop the kidnapping, the raping. You can't stop a damn thing. What are you doing? I guess they ain't got not one cat stuck in a tree in the whole damn city. Anyway, sorry. So working with independent yeah, journalist I mean, Jamie Calvin, Furderman was able to exhume the video of the McDonald's shooting and the autopsy report showing that he had been shot 16 times, evidence that completely contradicted the official account to describe the shooting as self-defense. Jason Van Dyke, the officer who shot McDonald, has been charged with first-degree murder and all but unprecedented development involving an on-duty police shooting in Chicago. Though, free, though through freedom of information requests, Futterman has also pried loose a small portion of the disciplinary files which are available in an online database. The records Furterman was uh, seeks to preserve date back to 1967 and covered decades of corruption 
and abuse, including the now notorious John Burge torture scandal and the unlawful detentions, interrogations, and abuse of citizens at Holman Square's black site. The FOP negotiated contract requiring the destruction of records after five years went into effect on July, 2000, July 1, 2012, and it is by no means clear that it applies retroactively to misconduct cases that, that occurred prior to that agreement. The FOP is essentially seeking to relitigate the agreement for the purpose of obstructing an ongoing Justice Department investigation into the Chicago Police Department. Have y'all heard enough? How, how is any of this legit? How are the police legitimate? How yeah, is there a fraternity exactly. of or fraternal order of police union? How is it legitimate? They are corrupt. They got it going back to the 60s. Records of everything they've done. They just so bold and so proud. They got all this in files just there for the people to see. And the minute somebody shot, what they say, sunlight well, is the greatest disinfectant. The minute sunlight gets shined on it, now they want to destroy it. Rico, Rico, that sounds like Rico charges, man. That sounds like perfect Rico charges, a criminal conspiracy. Right, right. That's exactly what it when is. You're talking about a wolf in sheep, sheep's clothing. You can't help but think of the uh, police union being a member of AFL-CIO. Uh, and we recently, I think a few weeks ago, we reported uh, the California, University of California academic workers who wrote a letter and called on the AFL-CIO to terminate police unions association. They shouldn't have anything to do with that. Literally, wolves in sheep's clothing. The very people who will be out there fighting and striding, striking and negotiating for their rights as workers are the people who are being replaced by the folks from your community that they're incarcerating and putting to work in these prisons. See, it makes me want to just stop everything I'm doing and go to law school and, and then start suing these police unions, police departments and cities under RICO charges. I mean, it's already been shown that it can be done with that that group out there in in uh Colorado I think it was that uh filed the RICO charges in civil court against the legal uh uh cannabis dispensary caused caused them to shut their doors I would love to go after these police unions on RICO violations man and and, and take all of their money Well the story RICO continues would be the best way that, to go. Uh, I, I'm a friend I have a friend by mm -hmm. the name of Joseph Pujol, I just wanted to point out, from uh, Let My People Go, the group, and he's working on uh, attacking the bonds of Congress and even the president himself as illegitimate. This dude is taking it at the highest level he could possibly take it. He's a, uh, a well-learned lawyer, and from what I understand, he's also a judge. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm going to keep that surprise. He may even call in at one point. Well, the story goes on Sorry about the to uh, goes on to say um, this is this all ties into the current situation, as they said, with Laquan McDonald and several others that have been gunned down by the police and abused by police because they're trying to get rid of all these records. It says although FOP President Angelo pouts that quote unquote, I don't understand why a 77 year old retiree's complaint back in 1967 needs to be on this database. The records that his union is seeking to destroy include disciplinary histories that are directly relevant to very recent incidents of excessive force. For example, 
when you do a search for Jason Van Dyke, who is the officer who's charged with first-degree murder in the killing of Laquan McDonald, the results show that he had 19 complaints before he ever fatally shot Laquan McDonald, including 10 that were for use of force. Another example, the officer who shot and killed Cedric Chapman had, has currently 30 complaints in the system. Including 10 I mean, how do you get that many force? complaints and still have a job? You know what I'm saying? How do you get that well, many complaints? Now, just, the, I mean, just think if I was on a regular job, let's say I was working for Burger King or something like that, and I've been written up 30 times, man, I wouldn't even make it to 30 times. I would have been no. shown the door. Yeah, yeah. The sad the thing LAPD to me story is that the way that, that, later on the way that it works is shows that how that can happen. They, when they review uh, 2,000 oh, cases and cancel them all. Yeah, Johan, I don't think Max. I think Max is hearing a delay or or or, or something. He's not able to hear you when you're yeah, talking. I am. I'm okay. sorry. I'm sorry. I, I but am no, I just just for that. me, the thing this 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 like gets me worked up about this is okay. Once again, we're showing people the absolute facts. Number one, we may become emotional. As we react to it, but we're not just speaking on emotions. We're giving you the absolute facts. This is a matter of court record. This is a matter of historical and factual record, what we're talking about, first of all. So that means you can't dispute it. This is not some, some fantasy that we're just living in. This is the reality of the truth of how this city is being run. See, that's the thing you have to understand. Every citizen that wakes up and goes to bed at night in that city is subject to this reality that the police are creating and maintaining. Doesn't that mean something to you? If you lived on your own land where you didn't have no neighbors and the police don't come out there bothering you and you were just free to do what you want to do, mind your own business, you want to go out in your backyard, smoke some weed, drive your tractor, shoot your dog, screw on your porch, set a bonfire, whatever, wouldn't you have a little bit different impression of what the police was about than if you lived in a city teeming with millions of people who all of you are under the threat of modern-day slavery handed down to you at any given time. All of you are under the threat of slave-catching techniques, which may lead up to and include raping you, torturing you, kidnapping you, straight-up lynching you right then and there, and then being called justified in doing that. Wouldn't you have a different impression of freedom and of what this country is about, white supremacy, when you see all these black folks and poor folks and folks that look like you this subject to this? And then you see a certain other group of people that's doing the same damn thing and ain't never had an incident with the police ever a day in their life. Wouldn't these things color the way that you see the reality of the truth? When this is what they can do to you and there's no recourse, there's no reprimand. As Scotty said, if you got two or three incidents at your job, you out the door. These people got 30 incidents and still out here shooting and killing people and being found innocent of any kind of charge. How can you not understand that this is what people are upset about. And we're just talking about Chicago. When we take this, as Max Parthas is the, the, the A number one researcher that has shown you city to city, state to state, all over the country, the same damn thing is happening in every city across America. How can you deny what we're telling you? When we've shown you coast to coast, every city, every state, this same thing. Ferguson is America. Chicago is America. It's happening everywhere. 
Amen. No doubt. And that, well, um, I was saying earlier that it did tie in with another story that we got uh, afterwards about L.A. and how they reviewed like 1,700 cases against them for racial discrimination and dismissed them all. That's how Chicago does it. Same thing. You probably find that in quite a few other places where uh, the chief or whoever that was from the FOP said, I'm going to protect all my people, right? It doesn't matter if they're right or wrong. It doesn't matter if they killed you, raped you, uh, extorted you. It doesn't matter if they're wearing blue, I'm on their side. And now they're going to destroy evidence talking about why it doesn't matter if something from 1967 would apply to 2015 or 2016. That's metadata that the CIA collects all the time from all of us because it shows patterns in practice. All right. So I, well, I don't know this, how this, much of a delay I'm on, but can you guys hear me pretty clear now? Yeah, but, I can hear you clear. I mean, we can hear you clear. You just sound different. You just sound like, you know, like, like you're speaking into a laptop a and not way. a mic, but I mean, yeah, nothing we can do about much. it right now. You know, you just moved and you're going through a transition, and and so you still, you know, got to work those issues out. But we hear everything you're saying. Don't you know? So don't worry about okay. it. But we do got to move well, on, though. I'm working on another. Yeah, that was what I wanted to say. We do got to move. We got two more stories to do. And today I get to do my home state. So I'm hoping I get enough time to do New Jersey as Ferguson uh, and speak from experience. The next story we want to go on, and we talked about this before, is the for-profit probation maids. Uh, for-profit probation companies are a part of the prison industrial complex. They're a part of the slave system. It's one of those ways where they extort you nonstop in every possible way you can imagine. And uh, this story comes from the National Journal, and it says, in the Mississippi Delta town of Greenwood, a for-profit company promised city leaders it could take over its cash-strapped probation system without any expense to taxpayers. Not only that, but the company said it could actually turn a profit for itself in the city by collecting fines. Just eight months later, just eight months, nearly 10% of the town's 15,000 population was on probation for minor offenses like traffic violations and owing fees to the company. By the time city leaders realized the damage, the company had entitled itself to profits of at least $48,000 a month, all paid for, as one county official said, off the backs of poor people. Now, I want to add in here that we know it's not just off the backs of poor people. We know there's a majority usually involved in this. We already told you who's going in and out of these doors by a large landslide. But okay, let's keep the politically correct term going. When it contracted with the company, Greenwood adopted what's called an offender-funded probation system. More than a dozen states in the U.S. use it. And each year, hundreds of thousands of people are sentenced to probation by private companies. They're sentenced to probation by private companies. The appeal of these programs is that the private companies offer to operate a local court's probation program at no cost to the taxpayer. Instead, the offenders pay for it all themselves through supervision fees. Let me repeat that. Instead, the people they capture pay for it all themselves through what they're calling extortion supervision fees. These often unnoticed charges earn the corporation a healthy profit. 
sometimes ranging from $35 to $100 in monthly added costs. And if defenders can't pay, companies may use the threat of jail to compel them. They have a graphic that goes with this, and it says that the result is a system that unjustly impacts the poor. Again, we'll be politically correct. All lives matter. In the town of Greenwood, where the average income is $14,000, the Board of Supervisors voted to end its contract with the for-profit probation company after just eight months. In October, the American Civil Liberties Union filed a lawsuit in Mississippi against the same company, Judicial Correction Services, saying it runs what amounts to a modern-day debtor's prison. That story is available on New Abolitionist Radio right now on Facebook with the chart that shows you where all this money is going. This is another thing we've been telling you about for a while. Uh, yeah, how we, uh, I, I'm and thinking of other stories. Tragic thing. Yeah, I'm thinking of other stories that we reported on similar to this in recent weeks. Again, you know, as Johanna just said, as y'all both of you, you two came up with the America is Ferguson series, pattern and practice all across this land. I wish it was some way to... Johanna, anything on that story? Yeah, I was going to say, I wish it was some way to... Uh, well, I mean, I guess we have one of the ways is to continue to speak the truth, to continue to do the investigations, to continue to put this out, you know, week to week on the program and on the, you know, saving on the podcast and then also posting and sharing through the, you know, move to abolish 21st century slavery and human trafficking group on the new abolitionist radio page itself. Uh, abolitionist daily page I mean to continue to just get this news out there but I, I just I just wish it was some way to get people to just connect the dots it's so easy I mean the what's 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 killing us and what's making us suffer in ways that we can actually control and change it's right in the palm of our hands I mean no we might not figure out what to do about global warming for example you know next month but we could stop this mess tonight. Like, seriously, today it could just be over. Tonight. People say, you know what, that's some bull, and you ain't doing that, so guess what's not going to happen? You're not going to have this little fake-ass law you made to protect yourself. As a matter of fact, all your unions are illegal until we investigate and find out what have you actually been doing to us. It's not going to be no more of this. Uh, people still working with you that's got all these uh, settlements and all these uh, uh, accusations and cases against them. and all. No, you don't work there no more. You can't be a cop anymore. Just some basic, simple little things we could do because time after time, these cops is doing the killing, got a case thicker than the, the criminal case. So how can you be a cop and be on one side where you can destroy the evidence that is the proof of your patterns and practices, the proof of who you are, the proof about how you think about the people you're supposed to be serving and protecting, the actual, absolute, factual proof Oftentimes, court-supported, testimony-supported, evidence and facts-supported proof about who you are. But in the same city, a city like Chicago, just trying to develop the real-world pre-crime program where they can look at the history of an individual and decide what he might do in the near future and stop by their house and drop a warrant on them and go do a search based on what we think you might do. That's a fact. Pre-crime wow. investigation is a fact. Now think Chicago about that. Chicago is a list. 
Think yeah. about that, Johan, and in, in the story we just got through with where they trying to destroy uh, the evidence, you know, all yeah. the uh, uh, history of these crooked cops brutalizing people. You should easily be able to predict that these people going to kill somebody based on all of the complaints. Yeah, I mean, come but on. Your man, but, but your man said there ain't no police state, though. That's that's what old boy had to say. And I bet you nine out of ten people, if we could just get people on the phone, get somebody on air right now, get somebody you could talk to face to face right now, any person you just go grab and ask them, you believe there's a police state in America right now? I bet you nine out of ten of these fools will sit up here. Oh, no, because they're scared to say what they may think or they're too dumb to know. They too busy worried about what Kim Kardashian doing to really care about these people that's got a gun on their hip, the law in their hand, shackles on their belt, in a life of slave plantation labor waiting for you. If they decide to put you there, you can't get out of it. We talk about that every week. These people can't get out of this mess. 30 years is going out their life when they get set free. 40 years, some die in custody. All these people that have died in custody just in the last year, black women, teenagers, young black women, all kind of crazy stories they tell about what happened to Sandra Bland is not the only one, and you see what they just did about her case. Ain't nobody about to get charged with that. These young sisters is dying in jails, county jails, city jails, like it's going out of style. Because they got the power to do that to you. Pull you over, snatch you out the car, throw you in the back of their car, take you to their jail. When they get done doing whatever they're doing to you, you turn up dead, there will be no investigation. There will be nothing we can do to help you when they get their hands on you. If they want to rape you, if they want to film they rape and, 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 and molesting you, beating you, torturing you, whatever, for their own sick little files, and then take that on home with them, they put your dead body right there in the middle of that jail cell and say, well, she killed herself. She OD'd. She, OD'd. she had marijuana in her system. And they'll put that on the evening news and say, well, the autopsy will be back in six weeks. The drug toxicology test will be back in eight weeks, and we'll report on it then. And then it'll be a little story after the news, after the weather, after the sports report. They'll have a little two seconds. They'll say, oh, yeah, remember uh, LaShonda Jenkins that died in police custody back in uh, November 2013? Well, the police report came back. She had a THC in her system. So that case is now closed. And your name is going to go down in history as you was a drug addict. You did something to deserve it. You deserve to die. And you'll be another one just like these thousands and thousands that happens this this happens to every year. People, this has got to stop. It just it's got to stop. This is why I say that, that good people can play major roles in supporting a bad system. Uh you can't keep denying what you're a part of. This hmm. is happening in mass. It's a big superorganism and you're playing a huge role in it as a person involved in this prison industrial complex at any level. You can't be the good guy. There is no such thing. There's no such thing as a good slaver. There's no such thing as a good slave catcher. There's no such thing as a night watchman who was honorable. These people practice slavery, which was accepted across the entire country, just like it is today. You can't hug your children and say Merry Christmas to your wife and then go throw 35 black people in jail and say, ho, ho, ho. It just don't work that way. Hmm. Hey, hmm. Let's get on to our next story, man. If you yeah, can. man. Because uh, we still got two more to do and uh, the Ferguson report as well. Uh, the next story kind of has a lot of this together. And that's with uh, the LAPD 
has announced, like you said they do, that of 1,356 allegations of bias policing against them by civilians, zero of those allegations were valid. Zero. <laughs> the claims of bias policing and euphemism for racial profiling were submitted to the LAPD from 2012 to 2014, according to the LA Times. And not even the president of the police commission can support the idea that an investigation would turn up no instances of wrongdoing whatsoever. We need to take a look at it, said the panel's president, Matt Johnson. I don't think anybody believes that there are no incidents of bias policing. The problem is we don't have any effective way of really educating the issue. Police Commissioner Robert Salsman called the decision troubling and disappointing and admitted that the strange official conclusion like these are why few in the city trust the LAPD. After all, this is the department that housed this officer, the officer involved in the Rampart scandal, and most famously, the five white officers who beat Rodney King in 1991, kicking off the fiery L.A. riots the following year. To say the department has no bias is impossible. And that's as far as I'll go with it. The rest is available on New Abolitionist Radio. But that's how it's done right there. They just absolved themselves of all guilt. We didn't do nothing legally. Now, we wrote it down. It's on this paper. It says we didn't do nothing, so that makes it real. It's proof that we did nothing. <laughs> Their word against yours, and they word is law. So uh, I don't know what you're going to do law. with that, because <laughs> they word is law. And it's always going to be against you. When they say a word, it's against you. When they put something out there, they talk about you. When they've taken somebody's credibility, it's yours. They don't ever take away from their own credibility. How is that possible? 150 years of doing what you do, 200 years of being around. Some of these institutions been around. What if we found the uh, Boston, the original slave patrols was like a, they had a badge that was like 16, 1636 or something on it. A lot of these old badges and police department banners and is so forth is from the late 1600s, 1700s. How do you go that long and you ain't never been wrong? I mean, the Boston Police Department and a couple of other ones are older than the United States itself. They were right. in existence before the American Revolution. And so since, you know, they have right. been around that long, I don't see how it is far-fetched to see that they are um, a, a very crucial cog in, in the uh, of slavery system. Back then, pri prior to 1865, right. and, and even now. Right. That's logical, though, Brother Scotty. That's logic, um, which apparently is in, in short supply uh, amongst, you know, many of our, our friends and family out here in the world. Because that's, that's just straight up logical. These other institutions had to go away. They at least had to change their names. I mean, these these companies and brands and you know, these, this, the evolution of this of this nation from that straight up slave country of the 1600s as things you know began to change, at least in the illusion of the appearance of what it is. Most things did take a turn or take a change, and they try to polish it up a little bit. Policing didn't give not one damn. Policing is like, no, nah, this is what we was, this is what we are, this is what we gonna be, and there's nothing you're gonna do about it. So the universal response of of the people is to turn a blind eye to it or join up with them 
go lick their ass and go buy a, a sticker for your back window and say, I support it, and hope they don't uh, take you and beat you and kill you. Or, or let the tumbleweeds ride between the ears like the girl does. <laughs> the ghost town sounds, yeah. Uh, like you know, but all of a sudden cognitive dissonance kicked in, and in order to even survive another day, you got to deny this completely and act like he ain't said nothing. There are more records of slave ships than one would dream. Break time. <laughs> You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. That's our cue for a birthday. We'll be right back after this. Run, non, non-violent. In the face of the violence that we've been uh, experiencing for the past 400 years, is actually doing our people a disservice. In fact, it's a crime. It's a crime. Here come the drums! Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio here at BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Uh, I've got a whole host of shows that you can check out uh, for black voices to be heard. And uh, that's what we're here to do today, talking about issues that are predominantly affecting the black community, but not specifically just the black community. All lives matter. Woo-woo-woo. Um, <laughs> I get to speak on something coming up now. That uh, Unless you guys have anything on the other story, I'll, I'll get on to no, I don't got nothing. I'm just, <laughs> I'm laughing at you talking about all lives matter. <laughs> and you mean that though, sincerely, you know, the, the other people, not so much. <laughs> I'm actually being just very sarcastic. You know, I mean, I suck at sarcasm. I'm too blunt for sarcasm. But nonetheless, man, I get to speak from personal experience, things that I've seen with my own eyes happening in the state that I was born and raised in, uh, New Jersey. New Jersey is Ferguson. Now, I haven't done the research on New Jersey for months, and I, you know, I could have. I did it on a lot of other states just because. But I wanted to wait until the time, and I did it so I could be a little surprised, too. And believe me, I was uh, certainly as surprised as you're going to be, as pissed off as you're going to be. But again, maybe worse because it's personal. So let's do the New Jersey is Ferguson, and the America is Ferguson, too. States with the highest black-to-white ratio are disproportionately located in Northeast and Midwest, including the leading states of Iowa, Vermont, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Wisconsin. The geographic concentration is true as well for the Hispanic-to-white ratio, with the most disproportionate states being Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, and New Hampshire. Just want to make sure you understood that this state is among the worst in the entire nation, even worse than the southern states of Mississippi and Alabama in the rate of incarceration of black to white. Prison and jail incarceration rates, rate of incarceration per 100,000 population, whites 190, blacks 2,352. You know, whenever I say hundreds of whites, it don't matter what state you're in, the next thing you're going to hear is thousands when it comes to blacks. Hispanic, 630. 
That means a group who represent only 14.8% of the total state population is being incarcerated at a rate of nearly 13 to 1 versus their white counterparts who make up a whopping 73% of the population. So let's tell you the people quick facts. Population as of 2014 is 8.9 million. White alone represents 73%. Black or African American represent 14.8%. American Indians. Now, this is a state that has so many native city names, city streets. Like you expect everywhere you look to be Native Americans, but that is certainly not the case. They represent 0.6% of the entire state. Asians make up 9.4%, and Hispano, Hispanic or Latino represent 19.3%. So there are more Hispanics than there are African Americans in New Jersey. I watched that happen in my own eyes. I was there, experienced it, as the blacks were pushed out and the Hispanics were pushed in to the ghettos. Uh, so I saw that with my own eyes and experienced it with my family going through that. Further, moving on, business quick facts, because we like to check these things out. The total number of firms as of 2007 in New Jersey is 781,622. Of those, black-owned firms represent 7.7%. Asian-owned firms represent 8.7%. And Hispanic-owned firms represent 8.7%. And as we've seen, state-to-state, women-owned firms represent 27.3%. Now, let's move on to facts and figures for the Department of Corrections costs. The annual budget for New Jersey is $1 billion. Yes, I said that would it be. That's $1 billion. Now, remember, we talked about Louisiana is only $666 million in the prison capital of the world. But New Jersey is a billion. Average annual cost per inmate is $54,865. So it costs you over $50,000 a year to incarcerate one adult. Department of Staff, uh, Correction Staff and Population, the total department active personnel is about 8,000. Roughly the same thing they have here in South Carolina, who only has a $500 million a year budget. The total number of facilities in New Jersey is 13. Total incarcerated under DOC jurisdiction? 23,123. Median total term, six years. Median age, 34 years. Average time served of released prisons, 2.5 years. Parole, facilities, 13. Population, 15,000 as of 2013. Quick facts. One in 35 adults is under correctional control in New Jersey. That is a huge number right there. One in 35 in New Jersey are under correctional control. The jail system. New Jersey has 21 counties. According to the latest jail census taken in 2006, there are 25 jail facilities and 18,380 inmates. The New Jersey Department of Corrections is responsible for inspecting jails for standards compliance. Jails like the Passaic uh, County holding community, which is a uh, constitutional violation made out of bricks. The prison system. As of December 31st, 2013, the New Jersey prison population was 22,452. 
on December 31st, 2012, the New Jersey Department of Corrections managed 13 facilities. The department budget for fiscal year 2012 was approximately $1 billion with a staff of 8,000 people. The community correction system. On June 30, 2011, there were 60,000, 60,750 adult probationers under the supervision of the probation division of the New Jersey courts. At the end of fiscal year 2012, there were 16,155 parolees under the state parole board supervision. Now, all of these numbers I've given you does not include children. The juvenile detention facilities is a huge industry in New Jersey, championed by the governor himself, Chris Christie, who has a direct relationship with the company CEC, a for-profit prison company which uh, specializes in halfway houses and housing juvenile uh, in their facility. New Jersey, in 2013, has a rate about 19% lower than the national average number of parolees per 100,000. At 54865 taxpayers in New Jersey paid 71% higher than other states per inmate in 2012. According to the Justice Policy Report, New Jersey pays private juvenile facilities $197,000 per year per child incarcerated. <clears throat> Make sure you heard that right. According to the Justice Policy Report, New Jersey pays private juvenile facilities like CEC $197,000 per year per child. That isn't a bounty on a child's head. I don't know what the hell is. Harriet Tubman would be like, wow, you got more money for me and you didn't even do anything. Of note, the relationship between CEC, community education centers, and major government officials, such as sitting governor and presidential candidate Chris Christie, are incredibly disturbing and wrought with corruption. I've provided you with links on the new abolitionist radio page as well as on the move to abolish uh, 21st Century Slavery and Human Trafficking page or group so that you can see these things with your own eyes and review the information. It's worthy of a Chicago or Ferguson-style federal investigation to how bad these things are. That's it from the America is Ferguson series. Data collected by Max Parker, December 23rd, 2015, New Abolitionist Radio, New Jersey, is Ferguson. Now, I saved my own personal story for the end, but there's the facts, gentlemen. Good job, as always, Max. Thank you. You know, and I th thought it was a stroke of brilliance when y'all came up with the ideal to, you know, um, replace the segment where we were looking at each state constitution to see if it had an exception clause um, that allowed them to still practice slavery uh, through the prisons. And so, you know, as always, man, my hat, I'm tipping my hat to you on your research. Indeed. Well, yeah, I think the idea came from Johanna, actually, and I just followed up by starting to do the research. I'm like, hell yeah, bro, let's do it. And I started doing it. So it kind of fell in my lap. And uh, it has been an experience for me. Thank you. I appreciate uh, what you said. But it's certainly been an experience for me, and I think very eye-opening to the entire nation and the other countries who are listening in on this program on a regular basis. Well, I said I wanted to save my little comments about you know what I experienced. This is what I saw. We ain't talking about laws, and we ain't talking about police chiefs, and mayors, and all this stuff, and you know all of these 
hefty and lofty positions. I'm just talking about some reality, what I saw. At one point, uh, the first war in Patterson, New Jersey, was predominantly black. I would say that you had to go to Hailden or Hawthorne uh, in order to see some white people. There's not many white people really live in our community. Uh, over a small period of time in the 80s, they started this on drugs really badly in Patterson, and they started arresting everybody. I found out later on that the purpose that this had hit Patterson so hard, and specifically on the black community, was twofold. One, they were uh, building a new municipal jail called the Passaic County Community Jail there, and this was going to be a money maker for them. So given the choice of who to put in prison, as usual, when you want to go looking for somebody to lock up, the first person they headed towards was the black community. And I watched all of our men be destroyed, our lives, families, just wiped out to the point where the homes that we own, the jobs that we had were all lost uh, or had fallen into ruin. And then the second part of their plan came in when they moved the Hispanics in, because at that point they were hiring a lot of Hispanic officers as well. And I think that was one of their purposes, that they want to see the Hispanic community thrive. So uh, if you go to Patterson now, it's hard, you'll be hard-pressed to find any black communities left. They've been replaced by Hispanic communities, which is why Hispanics make up 19, more than 19% of New Jersey, and uh, African-Americans only make up 14%, even though, you know, blacks have been there since the very beginning of New Jersey. But, you know, it is what it is. That's how uh, gentrification works. I also know that this is where I started my activism because of the event that occurred with Lawrence Myers, who was shot in the back of the head by a 16-year-old. He was a 16-year-old boy shot in the back of the head by a rookie cop. Uh, we fought against that to try to get some justice done. And justice in their eyes was giving that particular cop a promotion and putting him in charge of the juvenile detention facility. So you kill a kid, Lawrence Myers in this instance back in the 90s, and you get promoted to being in charge of children. That's how they roll over there in New Jersey. Uh, while I was there, and I may have mentioned this before, both the mayor, the first black mayor of Patterson, New Jersey, uh, Marty Barnes, and the sheriff of the time, uh, Englehart, I believe it were, were both arrested and imprisoned for in corruption. The mayor was dealing with these no-bid contracts, particularly having to do with services provided for the State County Community uh, Jail as well as other things. So he was doing a no-bid contract thing as well as spelling, spending the money on his own self and on his mistresses. <laughs> I think I may have mentioned the story one time before where uh, he called me into his office to tell me to stop what I was doing with the Lawrence Hunt Myers Talent House Foundation. And uh, I kind of, it wasn't a question. He wasn't asking me to. He was telling me to. And my counter was to show him pictures of him and his mistress out with my wife and my sister on a skiing trip and tell them to kiss my ass, pardon my language. But that was my experience with finding about this prison industrial complex and how all these people were involved in it. The sheriff was arresting our people and sending them to the prison to make money. The mayor was giving out no, a black man was giving out no big contracts for service providers in order to provide services for a captured audience, a captured customer base who had no choice but to buy and use their goods. And the retired policemen loved it, uh, the policemen's family, because they started building up bail bonds offices. Like everywhere you looked, there was a bail bond office. It became a huge industry, and it destroyed the African-American uh, community, basically, in Patterson, New Jersey. Hey, Max, did you tell them, and, and I, I know we got less than 15 minutes left, 
um, before the Lotus Place comes on. But did you tell them about? Because <clears throat> I had stepped away. But um, did you tell them about the uh, the community uh, event that y'all had that the police came and shut down? Remember? And, oh, that was just last year. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, just last year with the new mayor, Barack, uh, 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 Amiri Baraka's son, uh, what was his name again? Station me at the moment. Roz Baraka. Roz Baraka had just been elected mayor. And my brother-in-law holds a block party there every year. It's a huge event. The bikers come in and do tricks. Uh, the kids uh, run around on their bikes in the daytime. The bikers come in at night. It's a barbecue. My brother-in-law pays for it all. And we were there. And apparently someone didn't like us being doing this gathering, so the police came, and it's all on video, surrounded our entire community, including the children, with these armed policemen, and then started marching through the streets, pushing us out the way, with the mayor following behind with his entourage, demanding that we shut down this license. And, uh, I mean, we had all the paperwork. My brother-in-law was actually a guest on the program and told you about it. But we had all the paperwork, but they shut us down simply because someone didn't like the music that we were playing. And this was his way of showing his power and authority in the community. Now, Amir Baraka was my mentor. I had never met his son until that day. That was my introduction to his son, Ross Baraka, where he would come and you know, shut us down with armed forces, with children running around. And you could see these cops walking home with their hands on their guns next to little five-year-olds riding their bikes, surrounding the entire community. When I say surrounding it, I mean like an army would do with four police cars on this block, four on that block, three on the block on the other side, three on the block on the other side, and they're stopping people for no apparent reason. If anybody had done anything that might have made a cop nervous, somebody was going to die. And uh, that was my introduction to Roz Barak. That was, a matter of fact, that was only about a month or so right after uh, the uh, activities in Ferguson with Mike Brown. Mm. All right. So um, who is our writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad today? I see you chose a well, different person. Our writer of the. Um, what, what I did was I, the, you know, we've been going with the Innocence Project pretty regularly. And every now and then I like to show that people can be freed by different means. We had uh, Daryl Paget's story, for instance, who got himself out uh, by practicing and learning law in order to get, save himself from a 37 and a half year uh, sentence and getting out in 20. Kudos to him. Well, you know, the president just uh, gave a lot of people uh, release. 95 people just got released because the president gave them clemency. So I figured that one of those stories would be a good one. What did you think? Well, we'll save it for next week, but I just thought it was just outrageous that a man went to was convicted uh, for raping and beating this woman and spent, I forget, over 20 years, might have been 30 or 40 years in prison because she dreamed that he did it. <laughs> and I'm like, man, well, that's your evidence? She had a dream. <laughs> Man, we'll say that for next week, but we got like 10 minutes, well, so we got to move certainly, on. Exactly. You just, you just saved me some time. Uh, our writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad today is uh, Friday seemed like just another day in prison for Ramona Brown. One more day in the 21 years she spent behind bars. She got up, had breakfast, and went to medical appointment. But when she got back to her union in her Brooklyn prison, the counselor was waiting with an important message. She was finally going home. Brad. 52 had been serving a life sentence 
for first-time nonviolent cocaine possession charge. Prosecutors say she helped run a Charlotte, North Carolina drug ring with her boyfriend at the time. But Brett says she played on and was violently abused by her drug dealer boyfriend. As he sentenced her to life, even Brant's judge said he was absolutely shocked by the severity of her sentence. It seems that President Obama agreed. Brant was one of the 95 federal inmates whose sentences he commuted Friday, the vast majority of whom were nonviolent drug offenders like her. So I guess at this point, we can really call Obama an abolitionist because he just set some free people free again. My face is hurting from smiling, Brent told me in the phone interview from prison on Saturday. I don't know how to process this just yet. I am numb, dizzy, elated. She called her sons first. They put the news on Facebook, and now it's everywhere, Brent said. She's got messages from friends and family all over the country expressing their congratulations. That night, she told one of her best friends in the prison, but asked her to keep it quiet, to give her some time to process it. Instead, her friend... Her friend pushed me out into the room, screaming, everybody, wake up, get up. This woman is going free. Yeah, freedom is that important to people who don't have it. You can never understand until you lost it all. There was an uproar in here, and it did not sit down for about an hour, Grant said. The hugs, the screaming, the jumping. It was like a grand celebration. It's surreal. I feel really blessed, she said. The fact that 40 of the people who got clemencies on Friday were serving life sentences was especially important to Brett. President Obama believed in us, and I hope that all 40 of us don't let him down, she said. I hope he can look back years later and say, oh, they made a lot of themselves, and be proud of us 40 lifers. Well, we here at New Abolitionist Radio salute you, Ramona Brett. Welcome to Freedom. You and the other 40. Only hundreds of thousands or more to go. Salute. I know, man. I know, man. I know to every individual that gets it, it's the most important thing in the world. When we look back at this large picture, we're like, no, we want a million. But that one is going, I'll settle for one. Me. (laughs) Well, there you have it. A rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. Our next segment is uh, Abolitionist Profile, which Brother Johanna Elijah will be here. All right. Tonight... Our abolitionist in profile is Brother Robert Smalls. Cue the music, Scotty. <laughs> Robert Smalls uses intelligence. My, oh, hold hold up, man. We got to do it right. We got to do it right. My oh, bad. You. I'm rusty, man. I'm rusty. Come on with the music, brother. Robert Smalls uses intelligence, bravery, and cunning to free himself, his family, and many fellow African Americans. Smalls was born a slave in 1839 to Mother Lydia Polite on the McKee family plantation. It is assumed his father was the plantation owner's son, Henry McKee. As a child, Smalls had privileges not usually awarded to enslaved children. He played with both white and black children in the neighborhood, wore nice clothes, and slept on a bed in a small house. Polite worried her son did not understand the true horrors of slavery, arranged for him to spend time with her family on another plantation. He came back defiant and began challenging authority. Fearing once again for her son's safety, Polite asked McKee to rent Smalls out to work in Charleston. In Charleston, Smalls worked on the planter, a ship that transported cotton to Europe. There he learned how to pilot the ship and conduct the duties of the captain. At the start of the Civil War, the Confederate Army requisitioned the planter, 
One night, Smalls, with the assistance of some of the other enslaved men, commandeered the planter and sailed to freedom with his family. Because of his familiarity with the waters and the Confederate signals, Smalls easily sailed past Confederate blockades to the Union ships and surrendered. His daring escape earned him a meeting with President Lincoln and captain position in the Union Navy, becoming one of the highest paid African-American soldiers. Smalls also worked as a recruitment officer and convinced over 5,000 African-Americans to join the Union. From 1868 to 1874, Smalls served in the South Carolina House of Representatives and Senate, then as a member of the U.S. House of Representatives from 1875 to 1887. As a member of Congress, Smalls continued to fight for full rights for African Americans. Robert Smalls was the first African American hero of the Civil War. During Reconstruction, he was appointed the Major General in the South Carolina Militia. As we celebrate the work of Smalls and the 150th anniversary of the ratification of the 13th Amendment, which allegedly abolished slavery in the United States, we must acknowledge that an estimated 21 million people are still enslaved today worldwide, and we know 2.5 million who are enslaved here in America. So, New Abolitionist Radio salutes Brother Robert Smalls, today's abolitionist in profile. Salute, brother. Salute, brother. Salute, salute, salute. salute. Absolute. Several I, things. I see you read the first one, but I went and got the one from Black uh, Black Class Past Remembered, which shout out to them mm-hmm. for what they've been doing, uh, which is a better one because of that part where it said that. Yeah, I, if y'all body. look at I want the, this hip slap, the person. Who yeah, if you look at the comment section, old Scotty Reed had to leave a comment for him. Yeah, yeah. I see that. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody else follow suit right behind it too. Yeah. Yeah, man. Come on now. Read the 13th Amendment before you start talking about it. Abolish something. Look, we got about three minutes, but I see we do have a caller. We so rarely get calls uh, as this is really an information-based program. We come on here and spit and spit out the information for the people. But area code uh, 563, I don't know how long you've been hanging on, uh, but you got about two minutes to share your thoughts with us. Area code 563. Hello. Yes, you got about two minutes, bro. We at the end of the program, uh, but we're glad you hung in there and uh, share your thoughts. Who we speaking with? This is Mr. Joseph Pagat. I'm the judge, Mr. Max Parsons. Talked about. Oh, okay. Welcome, brother. Maybe you can call me back next week, but I did want to talk to you just to process about my memories of Newark, New Jersey, too. I, I, was, I was there in the 67 riots before it was the riots. It was beautiful. Hmm. The Polacks lived together, the Jews, everybody yeah, lived was, together, but after the riots, it was red line, and it was torture thereafter. Mm-hmm. And before then, cop, one cop could ride in the car and go to a scene and take care of business. But after that, cops would get their butts beat because they did us bad, and they're still doing us bad. But at the same time, I want to talk to you about this story over here in Washington State where the U.S. government is involved well, in human trafficking. But- and um, yes, brother Joseph, we we really don't have the time for the, the, the further comments. We're only a minute away from closing this show, and we just want to say five okay. things ourselves. But if you want to come next, next week, because uh, I have been trying to get you on the program, 
Yes, call us back next week because we want to talk about your story in detail because uh, you've got a bullet and it's ready to be fired and I want people to hear about it. All right? They need to hear it. All right. Human trafficking is alive and well in All right. the state. Bye. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Peace, brother. We'll, we'll be talking about it. Q&A Q and AQ is cleared. Um, final comments, brothers? Uh, my final comments is that and this is directed at all the PhDs out there that want to talk about slavery was abolished. And did they not, when you, you know, went for your PhD, have a course on English comprehension or something? You know, how can you say that slavery has been abolished when the 13th Amendment clearly says except? Do you not know what the definition of the word except is? So, you know, uh, all your learning uh, in this particular area did not serve you well. All right. So slavery was never abolished. We still need to end slavery. Those are my final thoughts. Hey, man, peace to the abolitionists. Death to the oppressors. Y'all know what time it is. Sid, everything I had to say, I said, except for this. Abolition is a reason for a revolution. So we can find information. Peace. Peace, peace. Rise up, 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 just lift your eyes up, let your eyes rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the beast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up, when famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near, if you've seen the sea spill over and the mountains shake, break and fall, if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all, rise up, 